Hello and welcome to How to Fix, a podcast all about the behind-the-scenes innovations that are solving society's big questions. I'm your host, Rich Williams, and across this series, we'll be talking to the cutting-edge researchers, activists and politicians from the University of Leeds who are taking ideas from the lab to the street to make this world a better place. Now, as we move into autumn and winter, a familiar worry has been creeping over us. How much will it cost to heat our homes? Will we be able to afford it? Last year saw an unprecedented rise in the cost of gas prices, and more households than ever were facing the cold. This is undoubtedly an urgent problem. Responding to the crisis, libraries and museums launched their warm banks initiatives where people could visit and keep warm during the day. Pubs and cafes also became de facto sanctuaries for those seeking warmth. Some might say the answer is simple, just go out somewhere or put another jumper on. But what about those with accessibility issues who might struggle to leave their home? Or how cold houses create conditions for damp, mould and frozen water pipes? We know that the problem of rising gas and oil prices as a result of geopolitical conflicts and change is a complex one. But in our relatively rich country, don't the people living in it deserve to stay warm? So how do we fix fuel poverty and ensure those who need it most can stay warm this winter? I'm really worried for this winter. I think it's going to be a horror show. It's still warm, so people might not put on the electricity yet. It's going to be horrendous this winter if nothing gets done. We speak at a time when many of my Slough constituents are struggling to pay their energy bills. Oil and gas giants are raking in the windfalls of war. But the Prime Minister and his government are too weak to stand up for the British people, especially for the increasing number of households now living in fuel poverty. We have a crisis with the economy that's been going on a long time. People have been poor for a long time. And now with the oil crisis and the escalating cost in energy, it's just unbelievable for people. People can't continue to live like this. We're seeing a lot more people with a fuel crisis that have never had to worry. The government made a legal commitment that by the end of this decade, all fuel-poor homes in England would be brought up to a reasonable standard. But at the current pace of change, it's estimated that target will be missed by a staggering 150 years. It could be a matter of life and death, literally. With me to discuss this are three guests from the University of Leeds who are all making a real difference. Firstly, we have Lucy Middlemiss, a professor of environment and society, specialising in sustainable consumption, energy poverty and sustainable community. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We also have Fleur Loveridge, a professor of geoenergy engineering, specialising in ground engineering, geoenergy and heat decarbonisation. Hi, great to be here. And Dan Edmiston, Associate Professor of Sociology and Social Policy, specialising in poverty and inequality. Dan, welcome to you as well. Thanks very much for having me. So lots to dig into here, lots to discuss. And maybe, Lucy, we'll start with you, because this is an issue that, of course, affects all of us, but it disproportionately damages those on lower incomes who are often ignored. So tell us a little bit about your research and the kind of practical insights you've seen on this issue. 
Yeah, so I've been looking at this issue for quite a few years. And I suppose the way that I research the issue is by talking to people in a fair amount of detail about their experiences, their life experiences. There are a number of things that come out of that research that we understand better how people manage to cope, particularly in the UK, in cold weather and in the face of the cold. And I suppose this winter has been particularly interesting from the perspective that it's been a real challenge for people. And the sort of insights from this winter that I think are important probably that people are heating less, less than they have been in the past, which in itself can be very little, and that people are really struggling in the face of the cold. And the problems that that causes are, for instance, that people's health degenerates, mental health, physical health, breathing problems, this kind of thing, and that people just feel really despairing about the future, I suppose, because there isn't really an end in sight to these high energy bills. And as a result, it's very difficult to see how people can continue to try and cope in the face of really unaffordable costs. Of course, the issue of heating homes is going to be a difficult one, a different one for different people across the populace. So there are people living in different areas, people of different age groups, people of different backgrounds and social economic situations. Your research specialises on that lived experience and not looking as a population as a whole, but actually looking at individual people within the population and how they're coping. So what are the differences you see between people within the population and, and how they are coping and how it's affecting them? Yeah, I guess one of the first things to say is that the kind of house that you live in is really important. So if you live in a drafty, poorly insulated home, the likelihood is you're paying quite a lot more for your energy bills. Either that or you're not using as much energy and you're living a worse quality of life, effectively. There are patterns in who lives in that kind of housing, what kinds of people live in that kind of housing. And so, yes, it, you're more likely to be on a low income, but then you're also probably more likely to be from an ethnic minority background. Disabled people are more likely to be on low incomes and therefore more likely to be in fuel poverty. So there's sort of almost compounding effects associated with the kinds of people that end up facing this kind of problem. And then the one thing I'd say about the last couple of years is the problem is kind of creeping up the income scale in the sense that, you know, maybe five years ago, being in the bottom 20% of the population, you'd probably be facing these kind of issues. And now it's more like bottom 40 or even bottom half of the population in terms of income levels. And that's a real problem because effectively we're putting more and more people into this kind of unhealthy living positions just by virtue of the level of cost associated, particularly with heating. Dan, I'm sure we'll come on this shortly in terms of the long-term effects of poverty and the stuff that he's been looking into. But in terms of things that are being done now, because there are wider questions about the future and how we future-proof heating and decarbonisation, and, and Fleur will speak about that. But in terms of things that are being done now to existing buildings, things that can be done and projects that are being worked on, what work is happening? Well, I guess it's important to say that in the UK, we have a relatively poor quality housing stock in the sense that it's not very well insulated and it's not very well maintained in terms of the sort of heating systems and so on. And I'm sure Fleur can say more about that. We do see movement on this. So we see, for instance, I'm following a project that's run by the Leeds City Council where they're cladding the outside of a tower block with thick insulated cladding effectively, which will result in the bills for those people living in that tower block coming down. But they only have so much capacity to do this because they only have so much budget and I think a really kind of extensive programme of that kind of work needs to be put in place and it's being talked about actually in relation to the net zero agenda but 
we've talked about it for quite a long time. And when we see the kinds of benefits that come out for the people that I research, you know, they are multiple. You know, we're talking about health benefits. We're talking about social life benefits and reducing people's budgets that they have to spend on energy and, and making that money available to do better things for their families elsewhere. So there's so many, many benefits here, as well as the obvious climate change ones that, you know, it's really time that we started to do this in a bigger way than we are doing now. And in terms of the research, part of that is tracking how people are getting on with these improvements. So talk us through that a little bit. We're in the middle of the first year of doing that. So far, we've kind of taken baseline measurements and understood what people are experiencing now. And actually today, somebody just showed me the graph of the temperatures, the average temperatures in homes during the winter. And they're looking really low. I mean, they're looking quite shockingly low. We're comparing them across six different countries, six European countries. And the UK temperatures are coming out the lowest of the lot, which is really quite disturbing. And it kind of shows, I mean, we are in a more northern climate than some of the other countries in our study. But it shows that people are really choosing not to heat. And we've kind of got the physical evidence of that, as well as the explanations as to why through the more kind of qualitative research that I do. Dan, it's probably worth bringing you in here a little bit because we talk about fuel poverty and Lucy's set the scene there a, a little bit for us. But you are focusing your research on the levels of poverty that people are facing right now. And it's called fuel poverty. But in reality, this is poverty right, with the word fuel attached to it. So talk us through the research you've done and just shed some light on just how big of a problem this is. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, when we're talking about fuel poverty and people's ability to heat their homes, there are a range of factors that kind of determine the heat of your property and the quality of the housing. But the ultimate baseline for determining whether somebody's able to heat their home is cash in your pocket, right? So I think there's kind of different routes into the issue of fuel poverty, and we can kind of focus more on issues of kind of infrastructure and pricing structures and tariffs, or we can think about the kind of level of income that people have and what that means for their capacity to secure the basics in their everyday life. At the moment, I'm involved in a project focusing specifically on those that are struggling in deep poverty. So not falling just below the poverty line, but falling a considerable distance from it. That's a mixed methods piece of research. And part of that work involves following people in severely low income situations over time and looking at how they've been coping during the cost of living crisis and particularly with energy bills. From that piece of work, we found, as Lucy was saying, that people are disconnecting. They're not using energy in the way that they would like to or using it at all in certain cases. So people not using any form of heating over the winter and trying to stay warm by, as you were saying at the beginning, you know, wearing extra clothing, but also by accessing warm banks or trying to stay in just one room in the house. And these kinds of experiences yeah, profoundly damaging for people's kind of mental well-being, but they have really large knock-on effects on their physical health as well. So many of the people that are in these situations are having to not just make difficult decisions between heating and eating, as people often say, but also the types of food that they're able to buy because, you know, it costs money to prepare a meal. So people are not just buying cheaper foodstuffs, but items that require much less energy consumption, either by using a kettle or just a microwave. 
And I guess the important thing really in terms of the work that you've been doing is to highlight that, you know, if you fall into poverty, it's hard to get out of poverty at that point. So it's a cyclical effect that more people are finding themselves in that actually for a lot of people, well, the bill's gone up, that's inconvenient and we'll find the money. But for the chunk of the population for who this then puts them in a untenable situation, for them to then make their way out of that becomes harder as well. So this has a long term effect. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you were in the middle of the income distribution and you saw certain costs going up, your consumption or your living costs might be elastic to some extent. So you might say cut back on going to the cinema or seeing friends or spending money on certain items in the supermarket. But when you have so little, there's very little left to cut. And as the cost of energy has increased. Many people in the lowest income situations have had little choice but to turn to accumulating debts as a result of rising energy prices. And this is a, a kind of poverty debt trap whereby the money that people receive at the beginning of the month goes straight back out on kind of servicing utility bills or loans and debts. And it makes it really difficult for people to escape financial hardship. One of the things that came out of the latest phase of fieldwork that we've been doing for the Deep Poverty Project is just how central the social security system is to people's livelihoods. I think everybody knows that. But one of the things that we found was that the social security system was very often during the cost of living crisis functioning as a debt collector. So withholding a certain amount of people's benefit entitlements so that these could service debts with utility providers or rent arrears. And this proved, as you might expect, devastating to kind of household security and well-being because people weren't receiving the entitlements that they were due and as a result had to turn to food banks and warm banks over the winter. The research paints a really worrying picture. Must be difficult research to conduct, Dan. In terms of looking at solutions, things that can be done in the short term, medium term, to improve the situation for those people who find themselves in this cycle? What are those things? What are the solutions? So I think Fleur and Lucy will be able to speak to the kind of longer term future proofing, as you described it. But I think ultimately, the issue is that living standards have really stalled in the UK over the last 15 years or so. So there's been very little wage growth and this means that people's living standards heading into the cost of living crisis and the significant increase in the cost of energy was kind of significantly diminished. And as a result, the social security system has a really key role to play, at least in the very, very short term, for helping people that are experiencing fuel poverty. So as an example, the Department of Work and Pensions withholds around £1.5 billion in universal credit to recover those quote-unquote debts that I talked about, what we could refer to here as kind of survival debts. And that could be a, a very quick and efficient way if we got rid of those deductions from the benefit system, it would be a, a very efficient way of targeting resources towards those who most need it to tackle fuel poverty in the here and now. Fleur, probably worth bringing you in here because heard from Lucy and Dan about the situation now. Obviously, a large part of this is how we look to the future and the uh, things that we can put in place. And that's 
very much where your expertise comes in. So talk to us a bit about the science, a bit about the work that's being done to, like we say, future-proof how we get our energy, the decarbonisation of heat, what we can do around that, because this is your area of expertise. Yeah, that's correct. And and some of those you know, issues, thinking about how we are going to reduce the carbon intensity of heating and cooling our buildings, because although we're talking mainly about heating, actually we're going to have to do more cooling with climate change as well. You know, some of that should really work in synergy with helping some of these issues related to fuel poverty. So, for example, Lucy has already mentioned like insulation and quality of building stock and how temperatures in our homes are probably lower than in other parts of, of Europe. And it's true, we have quite an ageing housing stock in this country and a lot of it needs retrofitting for modern insulation standards. And that is a, you know, it's often regarded as a low regret action when we talk about decarbonisation of the building sector, because not only will it make things cheaper because it's reducing energy consumption, but it also reduces pressure on energy from a, a carbon emissions perspective as well. So that definitely needs to be high up the agenda. It's something we've not been terribly good at in this country historically. Paired with that comes about what methods we actually use for heating because they affect the energy consumption. At the moment, most homes in this country are heated by direct burning of fossil fuels, by gas, essentially. And we all know what's happened to gas prices recently due to international global events. But there are other ways we can heat our homes. And as we come to try and decarbonise, we need to stop burning fossil fuels directly. So we need to move to electrification solutions. And if we do that, it offers the opportunity to take up some much more energy efficient solutions related to heat pumps and heat networks. So when we're burning gas, we're not getting an efficiency of greater than one. If we start to use heat pumps, we're starting to get an efficiency of three or four. So we're getting a lot more heating for our direct energy input. However, a challenge comes with that, which is that historically and still currently, the electricity that we would use to run our heat pumps is actually a lot more expensive than the gas we burn. So because we've historically had like a large North Sea gas field, oil field, we have been able to get gas at one seventh of the price of electricity. That ratio is, has changed now. It's more like a third, but that still means if you're not achieving an efficiency of three, then you're not actually saving money from electrification. And when we're talking about decarbonisation, we're interested in energy. But obviously, when we're talking about fuel poverty, we're very interested in the cost of that energy as well. So there is a bit of a challenge associated with what we call the spark gap, which is the difference in pricing between gas and electricity. And the reason that electricity prices have gone up recently as well, tracking with gas prices, is because we're still using gas to fire too many of our power stations. And we've increasingly got access to renewable wind and solar, which are actually cheaper to produce now, but we're not doing that enough. And often when demand is at its peak, that's when we need to be using gas-fired electricity, which is why it still has a large influence on our pricing. So there are things we need to do with the market, essentially. So in terms of the spark gap, we're just paying over the odds? To some extent, yes. The more we continue to decarbonise our whole energy system, the better that will become. But we could also make structural changes to the way it's sold and marketed, which should help. So there are kind of policy interventions that can be made in this area. In terms of the different use of, of getting energy into our homes that you talk about there, whether it's heat pumps, geothermal, all that kind of stuff, take us to a future and what that would look like and how the infrastructure would look like if, let's say, funding for these kind of things was no issue, money was not a problem. What would the ideal situation look like to you? 
So it's going to depend a bit on where you live. So if you're living in a city centre where housing density is high and energy density demand is high, then your heating might be delivered by a heat network. And that could be supplied from a variety of sources. It might be supplied from geothermal energy. It might be supplied from waste heat, from industry or from data centres. If you're living further out or in a more rural area, you might be working with individual heat pumps to supply your heating. So provision of heating and decarbonisation of heating is very much a place-based technology. You need to take account of what is available locally, which means decisions you know, need to be taken not just nationally in terms of policy, but also locally in terms of what's available and taking advantage of opportunities. So, for example, in Leeds, we have access to large volumes of old abandoned mines, which all have hot water in them compared to average ground temperatures and a a really important potential source of of future heating for the city. Let me just pause you there for a moment because I heard that about mines and thought, what? So tell us a little bit more about that and how that would work. Okay, so we can use a number of different heat sources to use with heat pump systems, district heating systems, and one of those potential heat sources is the ground. And if we have existing infrastructure in the ground, like old mines, be they coal mines or some other sorts of working, it's potentially a way to access water that would be slightly warmer than the ambient temperature in the ground. So it gives us an added advantage when we're connecting it to heating systems, essentially. The thing that's fascinating about these things that you're talking about is that there are these solutions there. (laughs) You know, it's not a case of, well, we have to rely on what we've always relied on. And it's too easy to say, well, let's just put them all in place because obviously there are bigger issues at play here. But in terms of looking to the future, there is no reason really why some of these things can't be innovative, why we can't pull people out of the problems that they've got in terms of heating their homes. It's not going to be an overnight fix, but actually there are a lot of solutions out there. It's a case of finding them and putting them into action. Absolutely. In a way, we know what to do about this problem on a technological basis already. We can always do it better. There are greater efficiencies to strive for, but partly it's about getting on and doing it. And some of that is about policy, funding and business models. So making these changes does cost money. So we've been talking about fuel poverty today. And if you're in fuel poverty, you're more likely to be living in social housing or private rented housing. And you will not be in control necessarily of what your heating system is. So you're dependent on the actions of the local authority or on the actions of your private landlord to change some of these systems. But actually, there are much wider society benefits, as has already been commented in terms of health. So if our governments or local authorities actually invest in making these changes, they will make savings in other parts of the system, like the health service. But it's not very often that we actually join these things up. And that's one of the things we need to do. Lucy? Just to say that it's not some kind of wild vision. (laughs) It's Denmark. That's what it is. It's already happening in other places. And so we maybe just need to be prepared to learn a little bit more from our neighbours where they're actively doing this. I mean, back in the 1970s, the Danish government had a policy which was that landlords should invest in the properties that they rent out and they should invest a certain proportion of the income from rent into the properties that they rent out. And as a result, their building efficiency is twice ours. That's the bottom line. And I I feel like 
you know, they've done it because they've had a continued investment in this infrastructure that is housing. We don't tend to see housing as infrastructure when it absolutely is. The buildings that we live in are such an important part of how we live our everyday lives and how we're supported to live our everyday lives. So I guess it's just not that radical a vision in a way. It's just a vision that's being implemented in other places and that we need to be a bit more ready to learn. So let me ask both yourself, Lucy, and Dan as well, because, you know, Fleur's here with uh, a list of solutions for us, yeah, which is great. And you're doing research into the current situation that people are in. Does it frustrate you or does it fill you with hope that actually we can move forward from where we are? Or, or do you just look at it and think, oh, pulling your hair out, going, I'm speaking to people, we can hear from people. It's so obvious that people are struggling. Yes, that's been made worse by the cost of living crisis and, and other factors that we, we know about in terms of gas. But oh, how frustrating that it's there. It is frustrating. And it's also frustrating to sort of look into the future and think about all these changes that are on the cards associated with net zero, many of which could really make quite a good improvement to people's everyday lives. But we really have to be ready to focus on that as well, like to be thinking about net zero in terms of, well, who can we then pull out of fuel poverty through these actions? And how do we ensure that the investments that we make are really aimed towards the people who need it, the people who are currently living these less than satisfactory lives because of the fact that, you know, the insulation is non-existent or, you know, they're not using the heating system that they've got because it doesn't work very well. Or so those changes, I think the net zero agenda really needs to focus towards justice and towards better distribution towards the most vulnerable in this situation. Maybe so for example the support that we got with energy bills over last winter which we all got was really poorly targeted and the households that Dan and I are talking to they got the same as my household right (laughs) and that just doesn't sit right because actually the extreme cost of energy last winter hit their households much worse than it hit my household. I think we need to be thinking about, well, if there's finite resources, let's make sure that those resources are really geared towards the bottom end of the income scale rather than to everyone. Yeah, and Dan, you were saying about the 1.5 billion gap there in terms of, actually, is that where the money should be plunged? In which case, pull the people who most need it out of the situation that they're in. I entirely agree with what Lucy's saying there about a kind of more effective and efficient targeting of resources where they're most needed. The energy price guarantee was incredibly important for households up and down the country. But for you know those with the least, we really need to be doing much better given the kind of stalling nature of living standards at the moment. And I think it's just also worth highlighting that those with the least in society are very often contributing the least to carbon emissions. So I think it's really important to hold this in mind when thinking about energy justice and decarbonisation. But just to kind of go back to your point about, you know, are you frustrated by what you're finding in your research and then this possible future? I think the cost of living crisis and the really significant rise in, in energy bills, it presents a really valuable and potentially powerful window of opportunity for us to kind of make the case for some of these really innovative and exciting solutions that Fleur was talking about. Fleur. So one of the things we're going to have to do if we're going to decarbonise heating is we're going to have to go into pretty much every single of the 28 million homes in this country that need decarbonising. And this is a real opportunity, as Dan said, to actually do things to make things happen. So we really should be should be seizing the kind of momentum we have to make change in response to the net zero challenge. In terms of trying to make significant change, 
looking ahead, there are so many factors that would need to fall into place for that to happen. But how long would that take? How quickly could we move towards a much more efficient system that would work for a huge chunk of the population? Probably not quickly enough. I mean, we've been saying for a while we want to, to you know, hit certain targets by 2030 or, or 2050. Well, actually, you know, that's just around the corner now. And when we haven't been going fast enough, we have a, a shortage of skills really in this sector to get these things done. Because if we are going to go into all these homes and make these changes, improve the insulation, change their heating system, we need the people who can go and do it, the people who can design them, the leaders in the sector who can you know, advocate for this change and, and make it happen. So I think we also all have a role to play in upskilling, both in terms of knowledge sharing generally, but also in terms of trades and, and engineers and public figures. And just to pick up on something Flo said earlier about these problems being quite place specific, I think that's really true. And then the hope then comes from people who are already acting in place to solve these problems. And so, I mean, to give the example of Leeds, there's a great team at Leeds City Council that are really active on decarbonising buildings. They know what they're doing. (laughs) They've done some really innovative projects with, for instance, there's there's a row of back-to-back terraces that they've retrofitted and, you know, basically put a lot of insulation in, reduced the amount of carbon being emitted by those houses. Back-to-backs are Leeds thing. (laughs) I mean, they do exist in some other cities, but they're incredibly prevalent in Leeds. And they know how to do that. They already know how to do that. What they don't have is a a large budget to go off and do the rest of the streets of Leeds that need doing. And so I think there's a lot of promise there in the sense that there's a lot of local authority actors in particular who really, really know what they're doing with this agenda. They just need a bit more funding, basically, to be able to go and do it on a bit of a bigger scale. Yeah. And and Dan, do you think Potentially the work that you're doing and and the research that you've seen in terms of deep poverty and and how people are are struggling with this at the moment might just well be the catalyst, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Because we know it's an issue that we've been talking about for a long time. You know, Fleur's saying this this isn't a new issue, but the fact that so many more people have been plunged into the situations that they're in. Could this be the catalyst to see some significant change? With my cynical hat on, (laughs) I don't think that necessarily the experience of a smaller proportion of the population is going to change hearts and minds of the general public or kind of decision makers within central government. But I I think the fact that the energy crisis that we kind of are all living through in, in this present moment is touching households up and down the country, I think that's kind of much more likely to affect change and kind of bring decision makers, activists, researchers to the table in a destructive way because there's a greater alignment of interests <laughs> for us to do something about this and do something about it quickly. I think it'd be really interesting to get from each of you a sense of the one thing that you feel is most important now to move the conversation on, to see some change in this. You know, if you were to wake up tomorrow morning and and one thing had changed, what that thing might be. So, Lucy, let me ask you first, you know, if you could see that one thing that was going to move us in the right direction, what would that be? I think probably treating housing as infrastructure, investing in it, and then, you know, particularly aiming that investment at people on the lowest incomes. Dan, what about you? I can see you've removed your cynical hat. So uh, <laughs> what would be the one thing for you, based on the stuff that you've seen, the, the work that you're doing, that you'd like to see first and foremost change? I think in the here and now, the most impactful thing that could be done is to 
reinvest in our social security system to make sure that people have enough cash in their pockets to cover the essentials. At the moment, our welfare system in the UK is so significantly underinvested in that it's not able to support people when they need it most. So I think from my perspective, that would be the most kind of pressing and impactful change that could be made to tackle fuel poverty. And Fleur, other than being given the front door keys to 28 million households, what would be the one thing with the work you know can be done and that is sat there maybe waiting to be done, what would be the one thing you'd like to see change here straight away? So I think we desperately need some policy action in areas that are going to help us retrofit buildings, both in terms of their fabric to improve their insulation and energy performance, but also addressing this spark trap So we bring down the difference between electricity and gas pricing because that will really help drive change. Well, thank you all for joining me on the podcast. Lucy Middlemas, Professor of Environment and Society. Fleur Loveridge, Professor of Geoenergy Engineering. And Dan Edmiston, Associate Professor of Sociology and Social Policy here at the University of Leeds. This is obviously going to take a, a lot of work to address fuel poverty, but amazing research being done at the University of Leeds on this. So thank you all for joining. It's been great to speak to you all here on the podcast. If you've been affected by any of the topics discussed today or you need any additional information on the support schemes that have been mentioned, please do see the episode show notes. They will all be in there. I'm Rich Williams. This has been How to Fix. Hopefully this podcast has shown that although society is facing some huge questions at the moment, there are incredible people constantly researching and innovating to help tackle those issues. And speaking of the big issues, we'll be discussing another one in the next episode. How to Fix was presented by Rich Williams and produced by Kasia Tomashevich. The audio producer was me, Jade Bailey, and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. How to Fix is a Podmasters production for the University of Leeds Communications and Engagement Team.